uh, let me remind you all of a few things uh, before we kind of jump in this morning. For you guys, just to remind you all, men's retreat coming up next week, and today is the last day to sign up. We have 155 guys that are going, and so I want to encourage you guys, don't be left behind. I'd love for you all to come. It'll be a great chance to get to know uh, some adult guys and kind of get to walk life out with each other and just get away for the weekend. It'll be a great chance if you ever wanted to throw an axe or throw a tree log. This is the retreat for you. So come with us. We'd love to have you. Also, second of all, uh, just a reminder for you guys, small groups just kicked off last week, but uh, really this upcoming Tuesday uh, and Wednesday night, if you're uh, Tuesday for upperclassmen, Wednesday for uh, Dulas and freshmen, it'll be the, really the first night where we're all really in groups, and so it's not too late. It's not going to be awkward if you just show up this week. We'd love to encourage you guys, if you haven't signed up already, to sign up this week and jump in. So it'll be a great semester with small groups. We'd love for you all to be there. But why don't you pray with me, guys, uh, and then we'll jump in this morning. Father God, we give you great thanks that you have uh, not left us in the dark. Um, but that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have spoken not only in creation, but that you've spoken even beyond that. Um, that you've deposited not in human hearts, but that you've deposited externally, that we could trust it and we could know it to you. And Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that as we open your word and as we wrestle with a question of whether the Bible is reliable or not, Lord, I pray that you would grant us wisdom. Um, I pray that you would teach us, that you would walk us through that, that you would give us a greater confidence by the end of the morning in that which sits in our laps. Um, that it is a reliable record and reliable testimony of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would be drawn to know him more, that we would have greater faith, greater understanding of the way that you've designed life, and that you would lead us and instruct us this morning, Lord. And Father, I pray in the midst of this time, Lord, that you would teach us not just objectively and with a bunch of arguments, Lord, but I pray that you'd spark our hearts, and that you would grow us nearer to you, not just with dependence on a text and a document, Lord, but that you would give us a greater passion for your Son, Jesus Christ, and greater confidence where he can be found and how he can be known, and that you would lead us and guide us this morning. We ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, you guys, I don't know about y'all, but I have always been a, uh, a keenly interested and fascinated by urban legends. Um, I don't know about you guys, I always kind of find them interesting in what they are, but I always find them interesting how they get propagated and how people will buy just about anything at times, right? Um, one of my favorite urban legends, and maybe it's not necessarily appropriate for a Sunday morning, but here we go anyways, was uh, the one where you guys have heard uh, about business travelers are traveling and then they meet someone in a bar, in a lounge, and then the next thing they know after they've taken a drink is that they wake up in a, in a bathtub with ice filled to their necks and a note on a wall that says, uh, do not move and call the police immediately. And they discover and they find out that their kidneys have been harvested. Um, if you guys have heard that story, I think it originated at one uh, Mardi Gras in New Orleans that followed it. And then it's been debunked as just a fiction, just an urban legend that, that for many parts though, had created all kinds of mass hysteria throughout the United States years and years ago. Um, some of y'all are squeamishing and, and kind of wincing at me as we go. But I, I think in many regards, I think urban legends are fascinating. But I think in some regards, many of us, as we approach the scriptures, kind of have the same view of them in many ways. That not we're squeamish by the scriptures, but that in some regards that the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, are in a sense ancient urban legend. That they're a legend, that they're lore, that they're the fascination or imagination and fabrication of some authors who have written. And that while they're really, it regards great teaching, in many cases we can't take them too seriously or too literally. That in regards this morning we're going to ask the question, really, what are the Bible? What is the Bible? Is it reliable? Can you trust it? And is it truly God's revealed written word? Has God spoken? And if so, what do we do? That's kind of where we're going this morning. If you guys were here last week, we kind of wrestled with the question, what is absolute truth? Does it exist? We basically came back and said, yeah, absolute truth does exist. And it's not to be discovered. It's not necessarily found always within science. It's not necessarily found always within our experience. But it is found and has been deposited external to us. That you can't intuit God. You can't intuit the truth and the spoken word of God. But it has to be found external to you and I. 
external to our generation, external to our culture. And the question is, if it's been revealed in a scripture or in a document, can it be reliable? Can it be trustworthy? What makes the scriptures of the Christian faith, the Bible, different than and even more reliable as God's spoken word than the Quran or the Book of Mormon, for example? That's kind of where we're going this morning. And I'm going to start you guys out in many regards, like we started out last week, and really with the idea of what are some objections to the scriptures? What are the most common or frequently found objections people have regarding the scriptures, and how do you answer those? That's kind of where we're going to start off, and then we'll end up really, if the scriptures really are reliable, what do we do with them, and and how we trust them, and how we live by them. So that's kind of where we're going this morning. Uh, Kind of starting off, objections to the Bible. One of the most frequently ones you've heard is that it has changed over time. So that what you hold in your lap is something that is similar to maybe what was originally written, but it is not an accurate portrayal of what was originally written centuries ago. So in many regards, it's like the game, uh, if you ever play the game, uh, what's it called, telephone or whatever, where someone starts off a message, passes it to a friend, passes it to another friend, passes it to another friend. By the time it gets to the end of the line, maybe 10 people later, it is so far different than what was originally said that is humorous, ridiculous, but anything but trustworthy and reliable. That's what many people, as they kind of start off with issues with the Bible, is that after so many translations, after so many centuries, and after so many copies of copies, how can you consider that what is sitting in your lap right now is actually accurate with what was originally written? I don't know if you guys have thought that. I don't know if you guys have wrestled with that. I don't know whether you guys have heard that in your university classes or not, but how in the world do you answer that? It is true. It is what sits in your lap is copies of copies. It's true. It's a translation of a translation. The question is, is it accurate as it's been copied and is it accurate as it's been translated? I'm trying to give you guys a few examples or answers to that. The first of all is this, that it has not changed over time because the process by which it was transmitted was incredibly accurate, if not obsessive, compulsive by those who copied it and transmitted it over time. All right? Let me give you guys a few examples. and Some of y'all have seen this or heard this before, but if you stack the scriptures up with regard to a lot of other documents, how reliable or how much evidence is there um, that what we have is what was originally written and that what we have hasn't changed over time. If you look at some of the early philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, they wrote in 4th century BC and the earliest copies of what we have of what they wrote came 900 or 1100 AD. So the time span between what they originally wrote and what the earliest copy that we have of what they wrote is about 1200 or 1400 years. There's an incredibly, different, uh, incredibly long time span between the first writing and the first copy of that writing that we have. In fact, for Plato and Aristotle, the number of copies that we have is minuscule at best. And so if you stack that up, if you look even at, uh, and compare to Homer's Iliad, some of you guys have seen this before, but I think it's really interesting when you kind of put it all on a table like this. Homer wrote 9th century BC. The first copy we have is 400 BC. 500 years, not a huge time span when you look at documents. And we have about 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. And if you compare those copies with one another, what you find that for Homer's Iliad, there's about a 95% difference between the copies. And so for many, no one would consider Homer's Iliad something that is an unreliable text from what Homer originally wrote. It's trustworthy, it's reliable. But when you compare that even with the scriptures, the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament, or specifically the New Testament, here's what you find. Commentators, historians will argue as to whether the New Testament and different portions of it were written as early as 40 A.D. or as late as 100 A.D. Let's take that time span. Earliest copy we find is a fragment of the Gospel of John. It's not the entirety of the Gospel of John, but a piece of the Gospel of John. We find that in 125 A.D. So the shortest time span between what was written and what we find copy-wise in the New Testament is anywhere from about 25 to 80 years. There's an incredibly short time span between what was originally written of the New Testament and what we find in copies. Even more than that, we have over 24,000 copies of the New Testament. 
Obviously, the later we go, the more we have as we go later. But what we're going to see as you compare those copies, whether they're early or late, is that there is about a 99% similarity between the copies. In fact, if you want to get down to specifics, there are about 20,000 lines of the New Testament. If you look at scrolls, of those 20,000 lines, about 40 are in contesting or have some kinds of differences or issues that have textual critics have to look at. So 20,000 lines, or 20,000 lines in total, 40 have any kind of discrepancy between 24,000 manuscripts. The point is there is an incredible accuracy as it's been preserved over time. In fact, of those differences, in seminaries we'll look at Greek, we'll look at Hebrew, we actually will study those differences, and what you actually see in those textual differences is they all relate to spelling, they relate to word choices or word divisions, they're nothing with regard to major doctrine, major historical events, or anything regarding Jesus' identity and his activity. And so the issues, even in the differences of the copies of your New Testament, are minuscule, punctual, stylistic, if anything. So what you have in your hand is truly very accurate from what was originally written. You can have a confidence in that. But even more, what I want to give you guys is not just a sense of the external manuscript evidence, but even more, I want you guys to have a sense just how in the world that the scriptures were preserved, specifically the Old Testament. Um, the Old Testament, as it was copied, you know, this wasn't like copy corner, so everything is handwritten, hand copied. It was a meticulous, incredibly slow process. In fact, the scribes who preserved the Old Testament from generation to generation, one of the reasons why we don't have a lot of recent copies of the Old Testament is because they had such regard for the Old Testament text, even as it was copied that as soon as it began to show wear and tear, as soon as it began to show any kind of diminished quality of condition, they just burned it. They had such reverence for the text, such reverence even for the written name of God, that the moment that text began to show any kind of conditions that were deteriorating, they actually burned it and recopied it, okay? Which is why we don't have a lot of Old Testament recent copies. But even more, when they copied this is what I find fascinating, if you're obsessive compulsive like me, what they did as they copied it is they copied it not word for word, but they copied it letter by letter. So they go one letter, one letter, one letter, one letter. And then when they finished one page that had a certain fixed number of columns and rows, they then counted each instance of each letter and made sure that in each page that was copied from one another that it had the same instances of each letter, the same instances of each word, page after page after page. And not only did they do that, but they looked at the middle letter and the middle row and the middle column and compared that with the page they had just copied. (laughs) The scribes were obsessive, compulsive, and you can have a great confidence. Old Testament, New Testament is very accurate for what what was originally written. But more often than not, people's issue is not whether it was preserved rightly. I think some of us today wonder that, especially as we're here now in the 21st century. How is this really what was written? I I think manuscript-wise, the copy and the process by which it was copied and transmitted, you can have incredible confidence that what was written originally is what you have in your hand. But most people's issues isn't there. (laughs) Most people aren't concerned with whether this is what was originally written, but they wonder whether what was originally written is historically accurate. That's really most people's issue. In the sense of, I understand the game of telephone, but most people's issue is this. Sure, it was preserved well, but what you have preserved really well is a lie. (laughs) A fabrication or an imagination. Uh, An urban legend, so to speak. And it's been carefully preserved perfectly, but it was never originally correct or accurate to history. Some of you guys, I think, have heard that in a lot of your classes, depending on if you've taken any religious classes, even here at Texas A&M University. The question is, is what you have in your lap not just preserved over time correctly, but is it historically accurate? How in the world would you answer that? Um, In many regards, I think there are two different flavors of that objection. Some will say this, that it is in a sense too consistent, that the text itself is too consistent with itself in compared to what was going on societally. There were a lot of different views about Jesus and what you have happening here in the text as it was assembled. A lot of different gospels, a lot of different writers, and what was chosen to go into your Bible, some will say, is too consistent with what was really a more diverse view of Jesus. And the idea was this. 
that somewhere in the mid-fourth century that the church gathered together once Christianity became the official world religion uh, with, for the Roman Empire and that an emperor and the church leaders who were now in power all got together and they decided that they wanted to protect their one view. And what they did as they protected their one view is they then suppressed and burned every other copy or viewpoint of Jesus. In fact, if you guys have read the Da Vinci Code from about eight or nine years ago, that idea is what's central within the book. Dan Brown, as he writes the Da Vinci Code, will say at the very beginning of it, he'll say, hey, all that I'm writing is historically accurate, and he's writing as if it's just fiction, or that it's nonfiction in a sense. But really what he's doing is he's writing a book that has a hook to you, and he's pressing an agenda. In fact, one of his characters in the book named T-Bing says this, and you're going to see this of you clearly in the book of the Da Vinci Code. History is always written by the winners. The winner writes the history books, books which glorify their own cause and disparage the conquered foe. As Napoleon once said, what is history but a fable agreed upon? And the idea was this, that the scriptures are so consistent in their view of Jesus that it is the product of one party who is in power and wanted to protect their view. So they all got together in a room with an emperor who could uh, press that view politically and protect it governmentally, and they decided all in a room, they voted, and then they protected their view and they dismissed all others. In fact, he'll go on, he'll say, at the Council of Nicaea, when the church decided explicitly what the books of the Bible were going to be, at that council, many aspects of Christianity were debated and voted upon, including the divinity of Jesus. Until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. It was all about power. Yet thousands of documents already existed chronicling the life of a mortal man. Constantine, the, uh, the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time, commissioned and financed the new Bible, the one that you have in your hands which omitted those Gospels that spoke of Christ's human traits and embellished those Gospels that made him godlike. The earlier Gospels were outlawed, gathered up, and burned. And so throughout the Da Vinci Code, he'll speak of secret Gospels that were burned, that were dismissed, and in a sense banished. And so the question is, did the church get together in the 4th century and decide, hey, here's what the Bible is, here's our view of Jesus, and they created it, they fabricated it, and then they did it so as to protect and, and ensure their own power and authority in society. Some of you guys may have heard that or you read the Da Vinci Code. Some of you guys have heard that societally. How do you answer that? When did the church have a sense of what the books of the Bible were? How did they go about that? When did they know that the New Testament books of the Bible were going to be authoritative and God-inspired? How did that happen? I'm going to kind of give you guys a few events. First of all, idea of this, we looked at this in terms of manuscripts in the New Testament. They're writing 40 to 100 A.D. The earliest copy we have is 125 A.D. And so in reality, you could have had some people who existed or were one generation removed from the live events, and so there would have been historical record. It would have been really easy to debate whether some claim about Jesus was not right because it was not a secret event, and it was not long, long after the event. In fact, in Acts chapter 26, Paul will say this. He says, The king knows about these matters, what happened in the Gospels, what happened in the book of Acts. None of these things escape his notice, for these things have not been done in, in a corner. What, what was recorded in the Gospels, what was recorded in the, in the book of Acts, as the church uh, developed, emerged, and spread, was not just in an isolated part of the world. It was all throughout Asia Minor. In fact, emperors, judges, kings would have known about it, in such that it would have been very easy to debate or, or to debunk a faulty view of Jesus' identity or his activity. The creation of the identity of Jesus did not come in mid-4th century. In fact, what I want to argue with you guys this morning and want to submit to you guys is that the church actually had a clear sense of what were the New Testament books long before the 4th century, long before Christianity was the public and official religion of the Roman Empire. And in fact, really what we see is that, uh, we'll get to that in a minute, what we see actually is that by the end of the 2nd century, many of the church fathers had already recorded and written down for us what they viewed as the authoritative books of the New Testament. In fact, all your four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
all of that which Paul wrote were already, by the end of the second century, conceived and understood to be authoritative New Testament writings inspired by God. Early church fathers, early church leaders all had a consensus about that 150 years before the councils of Nicaea, long before Christianity was now public, official, and protected. The church didn't just, when they finally had power, decide, hey, now this is what we're going to be our viewpoint, and this viewpoint will help protect us. The church knew long before that what was a consensus viewpoint of what should have been in your New Testament. Well, what was happening by the mid-fourth century then? And for the most of the second century and most of the third century, the Christian church was under attack. They were seen as a cult. They were persecuted. They were attacked. They were ravaged. And so for much of Christianity, they're hiding out in home churches. They're, they're not a public presence in society. And by the fourth century, Christianity becomes the official adopted religion of the Roman Empire. And so Christianity finally comes out of hiding. And when Christianity is finally coming out of hiding, finally they have a chance to articulate and defend their viewpoint from culture. Culture was saying Jesus was not divine, that he was just human. So now at the Council of Nicaea, they're finally going to provide a public explanation for what they understand and already understood about Jesus. Um, I had a church history prof give, us, give me this illustration. I kind of liked it. It's kind of out there, but I'm going to give it to you guys anyways. Um, that if you were to go through the city of Paris, that if you were to be in a riverboat at night, what they'll do is they'll go through the city of Paris. It's all lit up at night. You can see the Eiffel Tower. It's beautiful. And as you're going through uh, some of those river channels throughout the city of Paris, that the boat will have a spotlight, and it will kind of uh, scroll by, side by side, hitting the different walls of the channel so that they know where they are in the channel. And as they go along, what, they, what you end up ha- happening and what you end up seeing is that Along those little riversides, there are little canopies, little benches, and you have little French lovers making out on the riverside, all right? And as the boat's going along, you're not expecting it. As soon as the spotlight hits it, they're not in hiding anymore, and they're revealed and they're seen. The Council of Nicaea was like a riverboat going down a channel in Paris, and that as the spotlight hit the lovers on the side, the lovers were already there, and they were already making out, all right? In many regards, what I'm trying to say is that a Council of Nicaea, when the church has finally come out of hiding, the spotlight's hitting them, and they're, already, and they're showing what was already there to begin with. The church wasn't making out, but the church already had a sense of what the New Testament scriptures and the canon, or what was the collection of the Bible books, were to be. They already had that, but now that they're out and hiding, the spotlight hits it, and they're revealing what was already known and already understood and already had a consensus of. It wasn't that they were creating it. In fact, in many regards, if you look through the book of Da Vinci Code, in many regards, if you hear in some of your classes about secret gospels, the funny thing is they were not secret in any way, shape, or form. The church knew about some of these other gospels that uh, Da Vinci Code and, and a lot of your professors may refer to as secret. They were not secret. They were well known, but there's many different things about them. First of all, they were, they were well known. Second of all, they came a lot later than the four gospels that you have in your Bible. They were not in the same time period as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Second of all, they're weird, okay? Um, they're not like normal fiction. They're not like what you would open, read, and consider serious or legitimate. Let me give you an example. Ladies, you'll especially like this. This comes from the Gospel of Thomas, all right? Uh, this is from one of these secret Gospels that apparently had the real view of Jesus, all right? This is what it said. Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary go away from us, for women are not worthy of life. And you thought your New Testament was restrictive of the roles of women and gender, all right? Uh, look what Jesus says next. Jesus said, Lo, I shall lead her so that I may make her a male. <laughs> Whoa! That she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself a male will enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't know what that means, all right? But I do know that is funky and weird, okay? Uh, the Gospel of Thomas and some of these secret Gospels are like this. They are weird, okay? They're not on par. They don't sound like, they don't read like normal uh, nonfiction, all right? They don't read like a historical account 
of what actually happened. They're very weird, okay? In fact, if you read the Da Vinci Code, they'll say that these secret gospels present a human Jesus and that your Matthew, Mark, Luke, John come back and overwrite the human Jesus viewpoint. But in reality, these secret gospels all present a even more divine Jesus than what your gospels present you. That much of these secret gospels, so to speak, are actually not presenting in any way, shape, or form um, a human Jesus. They're actually presenting an even more divine Jesus. Why is that? They're written a lot later in a period known as Gnosticism, and they're actually saying this, that anything that is physical and fleshly is bad. So Jesus never had flesh. He wasn't human. And the secret gospels, so to speak, are not presenting a human Jesus. They're actually presenting a very divine Jesus, one who was not and did not have a physical body, one who did not and never did die on a cross, because if you don't have a physical body, you can't die. Truths that for the, for the very center of the Christian faith remove and, and take the very foundation of it out. Jesus has to be human. He has to die. He has to die in our place. And if he is not human, then he cannot do any of that. And we are still in our sins. All right. And so the point I'm trying to make is the secret gospels, A, were not a secret. They came a lot later than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They presented actually more divine Jesus and a weird Jesus, a Jesus that ladies really don't want. All right. The Gospel of Thomas is strange and it's weird and it's a lot like a lot of the other secret Gospels that apparently were removed because they would not have allowed the church to have their own power play. The last thing I want to kind of hit you guys with is this idea that if the church was, in a sense, presenting a viewpoint and, and text that uh, protected themselves and gave them power and authority within society, you would never have documents that actually show disciples bickering with one another. <laughs> there's a lot in the Gospels, there's a lot in the book of Acts, there's a lot throughout your New Testament epistles that actually frame and conceive and show the very leaders of the church as idiots. Okay, <laughs> If you're trying to protect your power and authority, you don't show your weakness, you don't show your issues. And so... You have Jesus telling Peter, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Peter is going to be the one upon which he's going to build the church. And yet, Jesus told him, get behind me. He was Satan in a sense. You have disciples bickering with one another. You have Paul, the leader of the Gentile church, uh, dressing down uh, the leader of the uh, Jewish church, Peter, verbally in front of everybody. Okay, In a, books, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a collection of books that were meant to protect the power of the church leaders, you would not have those kinds of things. On all that, I'm trying to say is this, that in a sense that the viewpoint of the scriptures that are, in a sense, some would say are too consistent, were not a fabrication or a power play of the church. Uh, That in many regards, the church had a clear sense of what was the biblical books to be included long before they were out of hiding and now the official deemed religion of the Roman Empire. Some will argue, though, that they're historically inaccurate and that they're too inconsistent internally. Completely different argument. That as you read Paul and you read James, the argument is, how could this be the word of God? Because Paul and James can't even agree with each other. <laughs> and if you're going to be with us this spring and studying the book of James, we'll hit that issue. Um, you have gospel accounts of the resurrection. One guy has one angel when Jesus uh, appears. One guy has two angels. What in the world? How, how could these gospel accounts be accurate um, if they have different details? Uh, so in that sense, they're internally inconsistent. In many regards, I think there's kind of a misunderstanding of how one tells a story, and that misunderstanding can actually provide a little bit of an explanation for some of the differences in, a, in, a, in the narratives and the Gospels or some of the things you see later on in the New Testament. I think that, and that's this, that if I were to tell you guys a story, in many regards, I don't have to provide you a quote word for word of what this person said. And as long as I get a pretty close gist of, of a quote, you guys will consider that authoritative and valid, Right. If I give you guys a story and it includes many details, even if it's not exhaustive of every detail, you guys will take it as a valid authoritative story, unless, of course, it's an engagement story, and then you girls want every exhaustive detail, right? There's a different standard of normal storytelling and engagement storytelling, right? 
And then in many regards, it's almost as if the Gospels are taken to engagement story level where you have to have every detail and it has to sound the exact same in every way. But in reality, if I'm telling a story to you, I'm going to tell it differently than if I, for example, was in main service talking to adults. I probably wouldn't have talked about kidneys being taken out, right? Okay, That as I tell one story to one group and I tell it to another group, I might change some of the details because for the audience, it's important differently from one audience to another. And I think there's some pretty basic explanations that explain why there's some differences within the Gospels and there's some differences between authors. In many regards, I think actually that the, the diversity of authorship and yet the consistency internally of the Bible is one of its greatest uh, evidences for why I think it is God's Word. Some will argue that actually there's too many inconsistencies, but in reality, if you look at the diversity of authorship and the diversity of time, the fact that you can have so much consistency says so much more about it than some of the few irreconcilable difficulties of how you weave things together. What I mean by this is, what I mean is this. Your Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is 66 books, 40 different authors, written over 1,500 different years, on three different continents, and three different languages. And yet, they weave together and they tell one unified story of God's movement and creation of humanity that was in His image to represent Him and to relate to Him, and a humanity that fell, and then from the rest of Genesis on, you have the story of God reconciling humanity back to Him, so that humanity could then again be related and represent him in the world. That as you go from Genesis to Revelation, you actually have one unified story throughout 1,500 different years, 40 different authors, three different continents, and three different languages. And really what you have in your New Testament is, and in your Bible is something incredibly more different and distinct from the Book of Mormon or the Quran. The kind of time span of writers, the, n- the number of writers, the number of cultures all contributing to one collection of books, that actually tells and weaves together one storyline, makes it stand so much more apart from the Book of Mormon or the Quran. That is a single author, brief time span, one culture, and often doesn't actually transpire and extend beyond culture. In fact, for many, if you look at the Book of Quran, as Islam comes in, it is, in a sense, not just a belief system, but it is a culture that has to come in. And that if Islam is going to take root, that culture has to look like just like every other Islamic culture. But in reality, with Christianity, it is not a culturally limited ideal. So as missionaries go and they take the gospel of Jesus Christ to places that have never heard it, and the church develops, emerges, and spreads, what you're going to see in East Asia or in China, and what you're going to see in America is a very different church, very different style of worship, very different style of walking with God. Because Christianity as a set of beliefs is not culturally limited, it is not a cultural form, but there is a diversity of the way that it is lived out. Does that make sense? So in many regards, what I'm trying to say is that it is historically accurate. It is, it is one unified story that is d- disparate from what all other culture says, but it also is internally actually consistent. And it is consistent, amazing, uh, considering the amazing diversity of authorship, time, and culture that has composed it. In many ways, though, I think for some of us, though, it's not just whether it's historically accurate. Maybe what was originally written was what was originally seen, and maybe it really was what was preserved accurately over time, but some will say that actually the, their issue is that it is scientifically implausible. The moment that you start talking about a God who is created, and the moment that you start talking about a virgin birth of one who was God and man who died and then resurrected, defeated life, and the moment that you start having supernatural miracles is the moment that some will say, oh, all right, that's interesting, but I, I think I'm out of here. And for those of you guys in a university setting in which, as we talked about even last week, that have come from a period known as modernism in which science has exalted itself often over revelation and has said that that which you cannot prove, touch, taste, hear, and repeat historically is something that you cannot give validity to. So what do you do with the scriptures? I can't repeat, repeat creation. I can't repeat a miracle. I can't do a miracle. 
surprisingly. All right. Um, but what do you do with this text? What do you do when Jesus is doing miracles and I can't prove them? How do you actually affirm that there could still be valid? And the reason why I chose the idea of implausible or plausible is that I cannot prove to you that some of the claims in the scriptures are accurate and verifiable and repeatable. Because they are by nature supernatural. They are outside of the normal course of natural events that I can see, touch, and repeat. So what do you do? In reality, science has said that that which you can see, touch, and repeat, have a hypothesis, theorize, experiment, and prove is that which is true. But can they speak to all that is true? My issue for you guys and what I want to hit is this issue of faith and science is a topic we could take a whole morning on, all right? I'm going to give you guys five minutes, all right? And it's going to be brief and it's going to be short. And my, my point is this, that science has a limited jurisdiction. Science can speak to that which it can see, touch, feel, repeat, and reproduce in a laboratory historically. But anything that it cannot see, touch, repeat, or, or reproduce in a laboratory historically is something that it necessarily can't dismiss. It can't prove and it can't validate, but it does not mean that it can say as an arbiter over truth that it is not true. In fact, if you guys um, have ever heard, uh, actually I mentioned this book to you guys last week, uh, Reason for God by Tim Keller. He'll have a section on the issue of science and ran across this quote, which I thought was interesting. Stephen Gold is going to criticize Richard Dawkins, both guys that believe in evolution, and Richard Dawkins is going to say this, that essentially that evolution explains creation, but science can explain all things. And the moment that science can't repeat or reproduce something, he'll say basically that there is no God. And Gould's point and Keller's point is this, the moment science removes beyond its jurisdiction, it is not being scientific, it is actually being philosophical. It has moved into the realm that it cannot repeat, see, touch, and feel, and therefore it has removed itself from being scientific. That's why Gould will say this, either half of my colleagues, scientists that he works with, are enormously stupid, or else the science of Darwinism is fully compatible with conventional religious beliefs. I'm not going to try to get into all the particulars and the mechanics of evolution and science and the creation story of Genesis 1 and 2. But what I do want to say is this. If God has created, there's a lot of diversity in how you can explain how that creation came about, began, and moved on. It is possible and feasible actually to explain God's creation in such a way that would include natural selection and evolution. But even as you go through some of those things and you go through some of those iterations and you're talking, at some point you have to ask and you have to answer a question of, what caused it? What began it? And you can keep going back stage after stage, but at some point you're going to get to a place that you cannot answer based on a repeatable, ob- objective, see it, touch it, feel it, hear it kind of explanation. At some point there is an uncaused cause. Hawkins would agree with it. At some point science can't speak anymore. At some point science cannot have absolute verifiable data to prove and give an answer for a question like who created and how did it create that makes sense? And so science, at some level, it has a certain jurisdiction. It can speak, but it cannot speak outside of that. And therefore, I think it cannot necessarily debunk the, the beliefs and the claims of the Bible as necessarily implausible. They could be plausible. They could be objective. They could be real. But we cannot necessarily prove or disprove it either way. Because I can't repeat, repeat creation. In fact, if you guys have been in here for a year and a half with me, you guys have seen me walk through this passage, and I think it's really fascinating. I want to guys take you guys to 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll actually open the scriptures for the first time this morning, all right? 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's point is this, that the claims and the identity and the activity of Jesus that we've recorded to you, that we've submitted to you, is not something that we just heard about, but we were eyewitnesses. We saw it, we walked with Jesus, we heard, we touched Jesus. We saw him do miracles. And in fact, he goes on further and he talks about a specific instance that was recorded in the Gospels in which Jesus took Peter 
John and another disciple, and they went up on a mountain. God came, the Father came, and he spoke to Jesus, the Son. Moses and Elijah showed up. Jesus was transfigured. It was one of the most amazing eyewitness experiences that anyone could have. Peter saw Jesus transfigured, glorified, became shining like white. He heard Moses. He saw Moses. He saw Elijah. He heard God the Father speak to Jesus. And actually, God the Father told Peter to shut up at one point, basically. Uh, But in that event, here's what Peter says. Here's what's fascinating. Such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven from when we were with him on the holy mountain. What I want you guys to notice is the very next statement that Peter says. Your text says, and most of your translations say, we have the prophetic word made more sure. In reality, I think that's somewhat of a postmodernistic translation that fits for the way that you and I think, in which experience validates an objective propositional truth. The Greek text actually does not translate it or put it that way. The Greek text actually says this, and yet we have the even surer prophetic word. We have the even surer prophetic word, and what's Peter saying? He just said, hey, look at the eyewitness experience I had. I walked with Jesus. I saw Jesus. In fact, I was with him at one moment on a mountain with Moses and Elijah. Uh, I heard God. I saw Jesus transfigured. And in the midst of that glorious, magnificent eyewitness experience, there's something even surer than that. And that's the written record, the prophetic word. That, that is an astonishing statement for one that just had that experience. And for you and I in a modernistic society and in a university setting, that betrays everything that you and I think and feel. What I see, can touch, can hear is what is most sure and most real to me. To, to trust something that is uh, unseen, unrepeatable, is faith and it's blind faith and it cannot be trusted. What Peter's going to say it is it can be trusted and it is even more sure than what you see, touch, feel, and think. And that's astonishing. And so to the issue of is it scientifically impossible, I would say no. And I think science can't prove or disprove some of the claims of the Bible. And I think when the moment it begins to disprove or the moment it begins to dismiss certain supernatural things within the scriptures is the moment that it has actually moved from being scientific to unscientific. It has moved outside of the realm and outside of the jurisdiction that it has set up as operating principles. So what are the scriptures? We would say it like this. The scriptures are inherent. Here's what inherent means. It's a code word we throw out in Bible churches, okay? Here's what it means. Inherency means that when all the facts are known and all science has shown us, all philosophy has shown us, all that we've learned from experience, the scriptures in their original autographs, their original copies of what was originally written and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine, morality, or with social, physical, or life sciences. And the idea is this. Again, sometimes I don't interpret rightly. (laughs) So my interpretation and my teaching is not infallible even to you guys on a Sunday morning, okay? Hopefully God is protective of that. But the issue and the idea is this. We get theology wrong at times, but what is here is inherently true. What is not always absolutely true is the way that we understand it. But even as our understanding grows, as culture progresses, as science advances, the more and more we know will not actually disrupt or remove the foundation that makes this true. That all things, society, all things historically, all things scientifically, the Bible will stand and has stood the test of time. It is scientifically plausible. It is historically accurate and it has been preserved over time. Why is that? Ultimately, I say the reason why that is is because it is not just a product of human authorship. The passage of Peter continues, and Peter says this. We're going to kind of land the plane here this morning of, if these were the objections to it, what is the objectives for it? What was it meant to do? If it is reliable, why? Why is it reliable, and what is it reliable for? Here's why it's reliable. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. 
but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The idea is this, even though there's 40 different human authors that have composed the 66 books in your Bible, it is not just a product of human authorship, but there is a divine author behind it. And that divine author allows for a flexibility and diversity of human authorship. So if you read James and you read Paul, they use different words and there's a different style. Paul is very uh, like a lawyer in the way that he argues. Peter and James are almost cyclical in the way that they argue. They, the text unfolds and is, it's written in diverse ways that account for diversity of human authorship. And yet, there's a divine author behind it that is weaving it all together that has made it wholly true. Um, in fact, that's why uh, Paul will say this in 2 Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God, the idea that God has breathed it out. It is not just a product of human authorship, but there's a God behind it who has authored it and I think preserved it over time to be a reliable, trustworthy document for you and I. And the archaeological evidence, internal and external evidence, all show that it is distinct and I think all the more reliable from the Book of Mormon or the Book of Quran. It is a unique document. It has divine authorship with a diversity of human authorship. And if that's all the case, then why? Why is it reliable? If it is reliable, what is it reliable for? Let me give you guys a few reasons real quick and we'll wrap up here. First of all, um, ultimately I was thinking this morning as we were singing worship and we were thinking and we are opening the Word of God, talking about is it reliable Let me give you guys a few things that I think it does, but ultimately the reason why it's reliable, the reason why it's divine authorship is not just to give you a bunch of true ideas. It doesn't just want to recount a bunch of true geographic places and a bunch of true propositional ideas, but ultimately what the scriptures are trying to do is reveal to you the person of Jesus Christ. It is not just a bunch of collection of literature that is giving you a bunch of ideas, but ultimately this book is meant to lead you into and reveal to you the person of Jesus Christ. The reason we come here on a Sunday morning is not just to get a bunch of correct ideas, even though we do that great as a Bible church. <laughs> Ultimately, my hope for you guys morning after morning is not just that you get attached to me, that you get attached to the worship experience, or that you love a bunch of the ideas that we communicate, but ultimately that what you get attached to and what you're driven to and what your heart moves for is the person of Jesus Christ. For it's for him that we worship and it's for him that we study the scriptures to know him. Not just a bunch of truths about him, but the, the scriptures themselves are that which brings us into a relationship with him to know him more deeply and to know him as he is, to worship him in spirit and in truth. Not only does it draw us to know him, but ultimately as we come to know him, here's what it does, three different things. One, it draws us to save us. 2 Timothy 3.15, the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Kind of talked about this a little bit last week, but ultimately creation, God has spoken in, in that which he has created universally to all people, to all generations, to all times. And yet what he has spoken in creation uh, is clear enough, and yet what we typically do and what all of humanity has done is misunderstood that which he's revealed. So Romans 1 will tell us, and we looked at this last week, that when we look out in creation, what we end up doing is not worshiping the creator, but we worship that which he, which he has created. We don't naturally interpret his revelation correctly in creation. We don't find it internally within, and so God had to speak, and he had to speak external to us. And in order to be saved, in order to know that which he's decreed about life, to know that we're sinful, to know that his son died in our place to forgive us of our sins and to reconcile us back to him, you have to have the written record. You can't intuit that from creation. You can't intuit that from your experience. You have to have a written record that reveals that to you and that brings you into that. And so the first thing that the scriptures do is they reveal you to Jesus Christ. And as you reveal to Jesus Christ, you understand that you are a sinner separated from him, but that you can be invited back into a relationship with him because he died on your behalf. That he forgave you of your sins and that he reconciled you to life with him. Not just life now, but life eternal. Not just life, a ticket to heaven, but life as is meant to be lived abundantly. All that he could provide, he wants to give. 
That's what Christ did. That's what you find in the scriptures. And he didn't just come to say, but he also came to reveal. So the scriptures, Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As you open the scriptures, they're not just like a piece of literature. Ultimately, it's going to reveal you to Jesus Christ. It's going to lead to your salvation if, you're, if your heart is soft. But even after that, it's going to open up your own heart. It's going to reveal, it's going to splice and cut and, and penetrate to the very depth of who you are. When you open up your science biology textbooks, that doesn't happen, right? <laughs> Nothing is cutting to the depth of who you are other than frustration and boredom, right? But the scriptures are entirely different than that kind of piece of literature. The scriptures, Hebrews 4, are alive, active, and they're piercing. They will cut because it's not just a book of literature, but it is uh, the word Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ revealed, stepping into your life, revealing, and the spirit moving in such a way that it is not just a bunch of ideas and a bunch of stories. But this piece and this collection of literature is, is alive and active because the Spirit of God takes it and teaches you and convicts you. And so it's not just that I'm a great speaker. It's not just that as you read, you're a great reader. But as the Spirit of God takes this book and it pierces your heart and leads to change in your life. Biology will not change you. <laughs> uh, philosophy will not change you. But the scriptures have the ability to actually pierce your heart and lead to a transformation and ability to overcome different issues in your life. Ultimately, as I was thinking this morning, that what I want for you guys is not just that you get a bunch of different ideas about how to protect and defend the Bible as reliable. But what my hope for you guys this morning is that as you think about life, as you wrestle this week with the fact that some guy just broke your heart, or you wrestle with the fact that you're so overwhelmed by school and it's two weeks in and you're stressed and a test is coming, and in the very, the very surface and the very ground level of your life that you'd realize that the scriptures are trustworthy and that they have everything to say to you about everything that you could ever experience and walk through. And then in the midst of your insecurities, it's not just the scriptures have a lesson for you, but they have ability to come into the very depths of your heart to challenge and then teach and transform you and change you. That's why Paul will say this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and this is where we're going to end this morning. All scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Here's what the scriptures do. They save you, they reveal, they cut open into you, and then they transform you. It's not just a mirror so that you see yourself and then you walk away, but it's a mirror that exposes yourself and then transforms you. Because the Spirit of God comes and it takes this, these truths, it takes the written record that you have in your lap, and then as you read it and as you soak in it, as you immerse yourself in it, the Spirit of God takes that, reveals, convicts, challenges, opens you up, and then transforms you at the very depth of your being in a way that nothing else can and no other person can. Because as you open the scriptures, the very unfolding of it brings light, and the very unfolding of it reveals you and brings you to the feet of Jesus. In fact, as you look at the Old Testament, you go through the New Testament, it is all about Jesus. It all brings you right to his feet, it brings you right to his person, and it teaches and changes and transforms you. And so this morning, why am I walking through all this? <laughs> Do I want you to have a bunch of different ideas, and the fact is, by the time you get to lunch, you're going to forget all about the manuscript stuff. That's Okay. <laughs> What I want for you guys this morning is that as you open this, you'd find this to be a reliable place in which God has spoken. And if God has spoken here and it's reliable, that you would put yourself under its authority. That it doesn't just reveal and won't just convict you, but it has the ability to change you and it has the ability to reveal to you how life has been designed in its fullest. Society, movies, TV, media don't do that. <laughs> in fact, they will tell you and they will show you how life can be lived in the greatest explosions possible, Okay. <laughs> the greatest crash and burns possible. But here's what life can look like humbly uh, as you walk with God and finding life as it's meant to be lived to its fullness. And so the rest of the semester as we walk through hard questions, we're going to talk about sex, we're going to talk about politics, we're going to talk about all different kinds of social issues.
But the reality is, if you don't wrestle and you don't land the plan on this issue, the rest of the semester is moot. If you don't believe that this is the reliable record of what God has spoken about himself and about life, then it does not matter for the rest of the semester what we say from it about sex, abortion, politics, social issues. It does not matter. Because if you don't think this is reliable, then you will not listen to it and you will not follow it. So as you come here every morning, every Sunday morning, I'm not giving you a bunch of stuff that's my opinion. In fact, the whole point for me is just to hide behind this as much as I can because I think this is what has life for you, not my opinion, not a bunch of funny illustrations, but this word unfolded and brought in front of you. And as it's unfolded and brought in front of you, you guys get to see how life is meant to be lived and lived to the fullest. And my question for you guys as we walk through the semester is if it begins to reveal things that are different than how you're living, what are you going to do? If it begins to reveal things that are different than what culture would say, what your professors would say, what your parents would say, what are you going to do? If it's reliable, will you trust it? Will you listen to it? And will you follow it? That's my hope for you guys. So let me pray. Father God, I give you great thanks that you have spoken, uh, that you've not left us in the dark, um, that you've spoken and you revealed and that you've moved near us, that you've pursued us from all of eternity. And Father, I pray that you would give us a greater sense in which uh, what a privilege it is that we hold a written record that's been compiled and that we have an independent copy of it. That every morning we can open it, every night we can open it, that we would not grow tired of hearing your voice, that we would not grow tired of stories that we think we've heard over and over, but that we would have a renewed passion and renewed interest even this morning and even this week to really walk in it and begin to dig in it, Lord. I pray that you would give us a sense in which the ink of it would still be fresh, as if it was just written yesterday, that you would have a fresh word for us And that in the midst of the very things that we feel the most uh, felt needs day in and day out, that are not about manuscripts and not about philosophical arguments, but in the very places in which we're dating, the very places in which we're thinking about our future, and the very places in which we're feeling the constraints of trials and difficulties, Lord, I pray that you would give us a confidence that you have a word for us, and that you have something to say in the midst of that experience, and that you have something to reveal. And I pray that you would teach us to be men and women of the book. Uh, that you would teach us to be men and women that are dependent to hear from you and that would find this to be the most reliable place to hear you and to know you. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. A couple of things before you guys go. Where are we going? Rest of the semester. Next week, actually, we're going to hit this issue. Why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? So how can a good God allow suffering? That's where we're going next week. Thank you, guys. See you all next week. <laughs>